Hello, friends. You know and I know that you have 70 million other podcast options, and that is why, as always, I am pleased as punch you have decided to join me once again here on The Tully Show. Hey, remember when you used to buy a single, maybe a CD single, maybe a cuss single, if you're as old as I am, maybe a flat-out vinyl single? And sometimes you'd prefer the A-side, the single, but sometimes you'd like the B-side as much, if not better than the song that you bought the single for in the first place? Well, as has increasingly become my want, I record a B-side to this show every month that I do it, and then I put it up on my Patreon, patreon.com slash Mike Tully. All the bands that I think are worth talking about who put out new music in September of 1982 that didn't quite make the cut for the main show. We're talking about such giants of the field as Kate Bush, Cool in the Gang, Dire Straits, Depeche Mode, and many more. The show, as always, is free and open for everyone to listen to. Listen to this show. Don't go anywhere. But once you are done, head on over there and listen to the best of the rest of September 1982 exclusively at patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Okay, you ready to start this show? <laughs> Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before, and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Oh, Coming to you live on tape from a newly refurbished and, might I add, freshly vacuumed podcast bunker in rapidly gentrifying Culver City, adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully, back once again to talk about a bunch of music that was brand spanking new a very long time ago. To be specific, all of the new and noteworthy music releases the month of uh, from the month of September of 1982 i say it every time so of course the nature of the beast some of these months are a little bit more exciting and action-packed than others i think you will agree this is uh this is one of the good ones and then some i really had a hard time figuring out what to put on this show what to put on the other show you already heard the intro i know patreon.com slash mike tully if you want to hear all the other all the other stuff including one album that made a list uh, Mojo Magazine's 50 Most Eccentric Albums of All Time. So there's a bonus show to the bonus show this time because by the time you hear this, I probably will have already posted um, uh, a best of Mojo Magazine's 50 Most Eccentric Albums of All Time also on my Patreon. <clears throat> Enough about that. Before we talk about all of the stuff that we're going to be talking about today, a couple of quick... I don't know if I'm using the Latin phrase mea culpa correctly. I'm not even sure I just pronounced it correctly. But I feel I know that I have two um, mistakes or uh, omissions. There's two things from the last episode of the new music releases that I need to address and rectify this time around. First of all, the Don Henley thing. I came down really, really hard on... Don Henley because I've always found him to be a little as far as especially for a rock guy to have a stick up his butt and to be very sanctimonious so in retrospect that I can see that I was all too ready to pounce when I saw a weakness in Don Henley's 
uh, pristine image armor. The story, you may recall, the the Eagles did their farewell tour and the, the final show of it, and then there's a party back at Henley's house, and there's some underage prostitutes and drugs involved, and one of the underage ladies um, ingested an, enough drugs to be in a serious enough condition that the paramedics were called. And I took it at face value. I read, a new, I did go so far as, I didn't just repeat something I saw on Wikipedia. I read the news story that came out at the time. Don Henley calls paramedics because underage prostitute at his house um, was near death from drugs, uh, from coke and lewds, I think, to be specific. And I assume that it, that, that was all there was to the story. In I, I, I forget if somebody sent me a link or not, but one way or another I found out, the way Henley explained it was, it was a big party. There was a lot of people there. I wasn't doing drugs. I didn't invite underage prostitutes. It was the rap tour for the Eagles' entire career. You can only imagine the kind of character. I mean, just starting with the members of the band, but then the people, the hangers-on, and, 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 and the friends and friends of friends. He's like, basically, I come in the room, and there's the situation, and this girl's out cold, and I decided to take the rap for it because I thought um, any delay may have uh, been the difference between life and death for this girl. And he said, I should have been, a I should have been a little bit more cynical about how it was going to be perceived, but I just wanted to get her help as quickly as possible. So I took the solar app for it, even though it had nothing to do with me. I wasn't there. We weren't there. I've never met Don Henley. So I have to give him the benefit of the doubt. My apologies to Don Henley, who does have at least a credible counter narrative to the story that I told last time on the show. I also want to apologize to Neil Diamond, who in the last show I erroneously stated was dead. I think Neil Diamond has some sort of condition and has retired from public life, so he may have seen better days. But Neil Diamond, very much alive, and I do apologize. Shine on, you crazy diamond. Okay, I'd like to look into the music news that's happening outside of just new music releases at the time of the month that we're talking about on this show. The thing that struck me most about things of that nature uh, is the who in, in this month in September of 82 are embarking on the way I think the way they put it on the wiki is the first tour they ever announced as their final tour. If I'm not mistaken, now let's really think about this. The who started releasing records. I don't know when I would say I'll, I'll even say that they'd been releasing records for 20 years at this point, but that would mean they came out in 62. So their actual real time as the who making as a credible, force in contemporary music lasted less than 20 years. That's an amazing run, but that's the, that's the amount of time we're talking about. And then they go, Hey, we're not kids anymore. There's a new generation with skinny ties and synthesizers and boys look like girls and girls look like boys. There's no place for the who we're dinosaurs in this world. We're going to do one more victory lap. Pete will smash a few more guitars and then we're out of here. I'm pretty sure the two surviving members are still touring as the Who right now, and I, I don't need to remind you, it's been 40 years. Their, their, their retirement has lasted twice as long as their actual career. But and, and of course, the Who are far from the only giant 
of rock who's been guilty of this sort of thing. It's sort of become a trope, a rite of passage, the fake, the fake out farewell tour, and then a series of them at last <laughs> as long, if not longer than the actual career itself. See also Kiss. I don't know if the Stones have ever actually said they're retiring. I think it's been more of a thing of Every time they come around, as they get into their 70s and 80s, people go, you know, who knows how many time, more times they're going to be able to do this. But for sure, I mean, Motley Crue are making a whole second career of it. Well, I don't know if the, the Who might well have started that thing this month. It's, uh, well, it's, when is it? It's, it's March. This is, oh man, I'm really becoming such a... So this such a sign of my age that I had to. St I know that we're talking about September of 1982. I had to stop for a second and remember what month we're currently in. Anyway, let's go back to the safety of the past and talk about all the music that came out in September 82. The Who announced the tour on the heels of releasing their 10th studio album. The band themselves would later say there was doubt and open vocal disagreement within the band as, as to whether or not they should even be recording an album, which is not, needless to say, the best way to enter a recording studio. And I think the uh, the results sort of bear out that non-committal and indecision. Very Who-y title, though. They did nail that with the title of their 10th album, It's Hard. Yup. See what they did there? The song, the track that seems to have been the relative standout of this maligned late era Who album, at least according to the iTunes reviews, is a track called Eminence. Front. Sorry, I got the title wrong. The Who. Just barely staying alive. Staying alive. Ha, 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 ha. Yeah, it sounds like the Bee Gees song. So, oh, speaking of the Bee Gees. So the Bee Gees, like a bunch of other big 70s artists, there's sort of a price to be paid sometimes. If you're successful in an era, that's great. But sometimes you can so typify, personify. You can so be an era that when the tide turns, you're left holding the bag because you're so strongly identified with that era that you were sort of the soundtrack to. Um, Michael McDonald has talked about that happening to the Doobie Brothers because being so 70s, it hurt. And that hurting them when the 80s came along, that definitely 100% applies to the Bee Gees, who didn't start off as a disco band, but obviously completely embraced that and elevated that. And then all of a sudden, the 80s and the kids with the skinny ties and boys look like girls and girls look like boys and keyboards. And the Bee Gees went from being as cool as you could be to being as lame as you could be. But they found a second life producing lots of people, writing lots of people. It's funny because you can listen to any number of successful records from the early 80s. And they are Bee Gees songs. They just don't have the Bee Gees doing the lead vocals. And as long as it didn't have the stink of the Bee Gees brand on it, 
uh, that same sound, very lightly adapted for the, the changes in style of the early 80s, continued to be incredibly successful. There is no better example of this than the album the Bee Gees worked on with Dionne Warwick. I have a soft spot in my heart for Dionne Warwick. I love the, the best of the stuff that she did with Burt Bacharach. Burt Bacharach, R.I.P. I'm pretty sure he is actually deceased as of a couple of weeks ago. Unlike Neil Diamond. Um, and Dionne Warwick, after the Bacharach stuff, she had some success in the 70s, but she was kind of in the wilderness. And then she combined forces with the Bee Gees for a late career triumph. It's syrupy, it's saccharine, it's mom-pop. And if you don't like it, I totally understand it. But I, I remember this song from when I was a kid. I re-found it uh, f uh, several years ago, and it really popped with me. And it, to me, it is, it's a great song. It's one of my favorite Dionne Warwick songs. And it was a big sick success for her here in September of 1982 as the title track of a new album. Remember those uh, like white shag carpets that were like the height of new money luxury in the early 80s? I feel like that that song is the audio equivalent of a lush 80s white shag carpet. And I, I actually do mean that in a good way. Dionne Warwick, who I'll never get tired of telling this story. Some of you, probably all of you know that I used to have a job with a big... Uh, radio corporation and then I and now I don't and haven't for a couple of years and but right before that that cleave in my career went down I was scheduled to do a zoom interview because it was the height of COVID with Dionne Warwick and I was I I, I have never prepared more for an interview than I did to speak to Dionne Warwick. I had so much fun sitting around watching clips of her from back in the day with my wife and kids. The whole family got involved. I can definitely say it's the only time that ever happened in my prep for an interview. And then wires got crossed, and uh, I think Dionne Warwick, who's not a young woman, could have used a little bit more hands-on help in, in her home, and we were unable to make the technological connection happen, and they talked about rescheduling it, and I said, yeah, fine. I didn't know I wasn't going to have a job three days later. And so we gave up and, and said we would do it again at a later date. And I went upstairs and I took a shower and I came back down and I had a missed phone call on my phone, the very phone I have in my hand right now. And I'm from northern New Jersey, so I know what a 201 area code means. And I know that Dion Warwick is from and still lives about five towns away from where I grew up. So um, you better believe. I've never used it and I never will. You better believe I saved that in my phone. I may have lost my job, but I gained Dion Warwick's home phone number in the process. Not a terrible deal. Speaking of people who were big hit makers in the preceding decade or decades who combined with uh, other noteworthy artists to have uh, a successful a successful song in uh, in September of 1982. You probably remember that Dionne Warwick song somewhere. It's probably in your memory somewhere, I would think, if you're about my age. You may not recall this. I consider this 
uh, a hidden gem from 80s pop. This is a track from somebody who was in one of the very, very big, one of the biggest selling pop acts of all time. They were incredibly 70s in their own right, as much if not more so than the Bee Gees. I know, but it's true. And then they stopped making new music, and this this female vocalist made two albums in her native Swedish, which is a big clue, and then decided to make one in in English. And she, uh, I read Phil Collins's book. I enjoyed it. I definitely recommend it if you have even a passing interest in Phil Collins or Genesis or '80s pop. And he talked about <clears throat> how busy he was during the '80s and how he's perfectly willing to concede he was very very overexposed but he says look at all the opportunities i had in front of me which one would you have said no to and on the list of all the stuff he was like everywhere in the 80s i just watched that movie hook the robin williams dustin hoffman uh the steven spielberg peter pan movie phil collins is in that too the band was everywhere at the time and one of the places that he popped up was producing this record right here. It definitely has that signature 1980s Phil Collins boom, 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 drum sound on it. I think this song is actually kind of cool, and it's particularly cool when you find out that it came from a member of ABBA. right if you're into that sort of thing I mean, if you like in the air tonight by phil collins it's pretty much a different song over the same music track right not bad for a member of abba can we at least all agree uh i mentioned the the the, the pinnacle of early 80s luxury and style to me seemed like in white shag carpet and i just remember i just figured out where i have that mental image from it's from the the billy joel music video under pressure when i was a kid i remember being legitimately kind of scared of the bit in a music video where he falls into gets sinks into the floor through the carpet do you recall that under pressure came out in september of 1982 on the billy joel album nylon curtain i've never been a huge Billy Joel fan, and I've definitely never been a Billy Joel album guy. I, I know the knock on him, one of the knocks on him was that he was a pretty pure pop performer, at least in the eyes of the critics, in the sense that his albums would typically have one, two, three um, songs that were clearly better than the rest of them. He was writing singles and then writing a bunch of filler, and real rock pop artists made real solid albums top to bottom. And I gather that if Billy Joel can be said to have made one real statement album, it is likely this album right here, Nylon Curtain, which had Under Pressure, it was a big single, had Allentown, which is 
both just a fun, catchy song to tap your toe to and a pretty poignant lyric in its own right. But I will call your attention right now to uh, the third single off of this album, which is very ambitious, almost like Broadway musical in its scope, yet also functions as a really good uh, pop song. I'm speaking of Billy Joel and Goodnight Saigon. doesn't matter where you stand on Billy Joel. That's a pretty powerful piece of music right there. Billy Joel, in my mind, is always sort of attached to Bruce Springsteen because they're both singer-songwriters. They both have like a shouty, you know, not pretty singing style. But as somebody who comes from the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, tri-state area, they're both strongly identified with very specific places in that tri-state area to somebody who's from the other side of the world or the other side of the country. The difference between the Jersey Shore and Long Island, which also has a shore, has the Hamptons, might not seem that big to you. I, obviously, as someone from New Jersey, I get the Jersey Shore thing. The Long Island thing is, is that's that's New York. That's forget about it. That's taxi cab drivers in 80s movies. I think in the eyes of 70s and 80s music critics, critics, Bruce Springsteen could always be held up as an example of what Billy Joel was not. Sure, Billy Joel was really successful and sure he had a million hits, but he wasn't like an artist with a message like Bruce Springsteen. And I think it's kind of funny that we find them here in the same month of 82, both putting out statement albums that really could not be more different from one another. Bruce Springsteen had already done the big, over-the-top, full-band, wall-of-sound, seven-minute epic songs like Goodnight Saigon that we just listened to right there That's that is actually literally seven minutes long. While Billy Joel is going for those sorts of heights, Bruce is scaling it back and going in the exact opposite direction, and he releases the Nebraska album. And for people who know about Nebraska, no introduction is necessary. I'll get you up to speed if you don't know about it. I think the story goes something like this. Bruce is, you know, looking at the the burnout at the end of the 70s and the and the and the Carter years and the malaise that falls over America during the Reagan Thatcher era. And he writes these somber, slow, mournful songs and sits down in a bedroom with a Tascam four-track recorder, which, like, to put that in perspective, I used to own a Tascam four-track recorder. It was, like, a $300 piece of equipment. And Bruce has just a regular $50 microphone and sits there with himself and his guitar and his harmonica and these very, very, very rudimentary uh, tools and he records what he thinks are demos for the next E Street Band album, but he plays them for his friends or his manager or whatever, and they go, no, 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 Bruce, don't you get it? That is the album. You made the album. Tell Clarence Clemens and Little Steven to sit this one out. We're just putting out these bare-bones acoustic demos, and I've met people who say they're not Bruce fans because they find them a little cheesy, but they 
but they love Nebraska. Among Bruce fans, I think many people will tell you that Nebraska sort of is the pinnacle, even though it's so different from all the rest of his stuff. This is core, credible Bruce Springsteen. As someone who I enjoy Bruce a lot, I own several of his albums. I personally, by the time I got to it, was a little underwhelmed by it, but to each their own. I definitely definitely connected very strongly with one of the songs. I definitely I don't think there's any debate. This is one of Bruce's all-time best off of Nebraska. I've been looking for a job, but it's hard to find. Down here it's just winners and losers and don't get caught on the wrong side of that line. Well, I'm tired of coming out on this losing end. So honey, last night I met this guy and I'm gonna do a little favor for him. Well, I guess everything dies, baby, that's a In September of 82, we find two huge prog rock acts of the 70s finding their way to the mainstream. I was thinking about the fact that mainstream success came for both of these acts around the same time and how when they started, uh, the, the genesis of their sound really couldn't have been further from what was happening in the pop world in the 1970s. But I think in certain ways, as these acts matured, what they did bent a little bit towards something a little bit more listenable to the mainstream public, a little bit more pop. But I also think that the stuff that they had put out there in the 70s had been like disseminated through the world and didn't sound quite as crazy or outside the box as it had when they first started doing it. Rush had already enjoyed some mainstream success by the time... 82 comes around, they've already put out the album with Tom Sawyer and, uh, and and Free Will. But this song is actually their biggest hit, at least here in the States. Learning to catch the heat of the third world man Probably not a coincidence that Rush's most popular mainstream song in the States is a song where their singer-bass player Getty Lee sticks to his lower register. I personally kind of like, I personally kind of really like Getty Lee's voice, but I know it's not for everyone, and uh, I think there's a lot of people who would say, I, you know, the joke, uh, was it from The Simpsons? I, I really like Woody Allen movies, I just don't like that. A uh, little Jewish guy who's in all of them. I think a lot of people respond to Rush's sound, but just uh, Getty Lee's voice is a bridge too far when he sits closer to his speaking voice. I think it's um, a little bit more acceptable to a, a wider audience. That's Rush. In September of 82, Peter Gabriel finally finishes his sort of unlikely metamorphosis from really outside-the-box prog rock guy. If you don't believe me, go try to sit through. Maybe you like the stuff that he did with Genesis. I I can't. There's just nothing there for me whatsoever. It was sometimes bands, sometimes artists in general, I think, 
the the ultimate goal is to be original and whether or not it's good is a secondary concern. Peter Gabriel era Genesis is very original uh, and and very individual, but I, I can't listen to it until they firmly get into the Phil Collins era. But I don't know, maybe maybe Peter Gabriel naturally matured as an artist into something that your mom could get into, or maybe he was looking at Genesis and Phil Collins and going, man, it must be nice to be able to like make a car payment and own a house. Maybe I could do that too. So he's going to end up having a bunch of big hits through the 80s, and in September of 82, he released what would be his first Hell yeah, in the 80s, we were all about Chuck and the Monkey. Who cares if nobody had any idea what the hell he was talking about? Of course, Peter Gabriel also always had a very, very, very strong visual element to what he did. So uh, I think he was able to take great advantage of making videos and the MTV age. Elsewhere in UK synth pop, Simple Minds have been kicking around for a minute at this point, but they finally put it together in a commercial-leaning way with this song right here. Listen, friends, I promised you that all the music we would talk about on this show would be noteworthy. I did not promise you it would all be good. Which actually, that reminds me of something. Um, I got to thinking about something the other day. So, because uh, my, my kid's getting into a bunch of stuff from the 60s. And once again, it just slaps you in the face. What were old people, the standard bearers, the powers that be, the media critics, what were they thinking listening to Hendrix or Eric Clapton or whatever? And just, you know, these guys, the the rock and roll rebellion just seems so incredibly mild in retrospect. These guys had, they just grew their hair like halfway down their ears and put the tiniest modicum of distortion on their guitars and all of a sudden everybody in mainstream media they're only all there was was mainstream media everybody with a voice was like this is noise garbage this i literally don't know what you children are getting at calling this music much less good music and then those people grow up and then they're they're the ones writing all the magazine articles and controlling the narrative in the 80s and they're like see 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 the beatles and the stones and hendrix those guys were geniuses now, Prince, that's garbage, right? Because they weren't using guitars and, you know, people like Prince were using synthesizers and, and drum machines. And then you go another 20, 30 years in the future and we go, okay, those wrong again. The the kids were right. Those synth pop acts, a lot of that was a lot of garbage. There's always a lot of garbage. Most of everything that gets released in any genre, in any artistic discipline is garbage. But there was some really great stuff in there. We can see that now. Are we destined to repeat that? Here's here's what I kind of started wondering. 
are the kids always right? Is it possible that the TikTok clips that your children are currently annoying you with are secretly genius? My ears tell me no. The historical evidence suggests, yeah, dude, for sure. Here's a good example. There's, I think, very few people in the rock establishment would have taken psychedelic furs seriously when they came out, even though, except for, except for David Bowie, who almost ended up producing their breakthrough album. Scheduling conflicts kept him from doing it. The band had some momentum. They didn't want to sit on their hands for six months waiting for Bowie to show up. So instead, they headed to upstate New York and made an album with another rock visionary, Todd Rundgren. And if this song can't convince people that 80s music was like actual real music, then I am fairly certain nothing will. Hey, you want to hear a really fun fact about a fairly unremarkable huge hit from the 80s? A song, I, it is so crazy, but it is true. I played this song for my daughter like six days ago. September of 1982, I don't need to tell you, is alive and well in at least my car in my desperate frantic search to... Uh, get my children to embrace and listen to music that is not currently on TikTok. Anyway, you know this song. I'll tell you I'll tell you what it is. It's uh Scandal. There's there's a Patty Smith and a Patty Smythe, right? And Patty Smith is the super credible New York City because the night lady Patty Smythe is Canadian. They often pronounce Smythe that way. I believe there's a hockey trophy of the same name and pronunciation. Pretty standard issue, female-fronted, pop rock, guitar, keyboard mix stuff. But they made one song that it, you'll, you'll, you'll know this song. Here's the bit that you didn't know. I'm betting because I didn't know it until I looked at the Wikipedia a couple minutes ago. Paul Schaefer of... We could probably do an entire show on just songs you didn't know. Paul Schaefer and the world's most dangerous band from David Letterman played on between him and... What was the drummer's name? Anton Fig played on like Kiss Records. Paul Schaefer played the keyboard solo on this song. You probably, you definitely know the song. You, the 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 solo is probably somewhere in the recesses of your brain. Paul Schaefer made this solo intentionally a tribute to the keyboard solo from Runaway by Del Shannon, and you've never noticed it before, but once I play it for you now, you'll never not notice it again. right i don't know i think so anyway a couple more acts from september of 82 that i think are worth touching on including descendants the whole socal 
punk thing of just Southern California punk in general to me has never been quite as interesting or exciting or as titillating as the, as the New York stuff or the New York stuff's not as exciting to me as the London stuff, but descendants are a band. You've heard of descendants. They're totally a thing. And you've probably seen the cover of their signature album. Milo goes to college. They're just very, I, I actually, something I really respect about them is I often quote Johnny Rotten saying that punk rock wasn't supposed to be everybody being different in the same way. Everybody was supposed to be different in a different way. Descendants, although I don't personally choose to listen to them, were definitely different. They were one of the least punk rock punk rock bands. They were aggressively nerdy, really, and nothing really typifies that as much as probably the best-known song off their first album, Suburban Home. So, Here's something I did not know until I prepped for this show about Descendants. Most of the band, this is pretty typical for up-and-coming rock bands, especially up-and-coming punk rock bands, were teenagers. Their bass player was 34 years old. The optics of this from modern eyes is, I mean, literally, I, I think it would be illegal for him to travel across state lines with the rest of his band, which I have to assume Descendants did at least a couple of times. But it seems like everything was on the up and up. They said he actually just acted like a kid and he was really good at bass, so he joined the band and it worked out well for everybody. They're minor legends. And you would assume that a band... Uh, a punk rock band writing a song called Suburban Home that it'd be this real tongue-in-cheek thing about who would want to live in that little death trap of network TV and dead-end jobs. But no, the 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 34-year-old bass player was like, I was old and I was tired of the bullshit, and I was thinking, boy, it would be nice if I just had a nice suburban home like my mom and dad do, because I'm old and that's the way I want to live my life. And that is the, inc- the surprisingly straightforward story behind uh, one of these signature songs of Descendants. Yeah, as a uh, 45-year-old married parent of two, that might be the most relatable punk song on earth for me personally. A couple more tracks to talk about before we wrap this up. Twisted Sister in September of 82 were still a couple years away from mainstream superstardom and MTV ubiquity, but they released their debut album and the title track would later place them firmly in the crosshairs of wife of U.S. Senator and future Vice President Al Gore, the notorious music activist Tipper Gore, who singled out a song from Twisted Sister in speaking to Congress years later. I don't know if it actually ended up on the Filthy 15, the songs that she singled out as being exactly what's wrong with music today and what it's doing to corrupt the minds of the youth. But once again, something that if you think, I know, I know, I'm old now too, and sometimes when you hear music artists singing about their wet-ass pussies, you go, this can't be good for my children. But 
everybody who said that was wrong in the 60s and oh my goodness was Tipper Gore comically wrong in the 80s and at the end of the day just bite your tongue mom and dad there's a really good chance the kids are the kids are just fine just like we were in speaking to Congress in 85 three years after the song came out Tipper Gore said the song under the blade referred to quote sadomasochism bondage and rape and said it promoted violence um speaking at congressional panel hearings d snyder said the song was about song under the blade was about getting surgery and the fear that it instills in a person knowing that somebody else is going to take a scalpel and cut into their flesh he added quote the only sadomasochism bondage and rape in this song is in the mind of ms gore Touche, D. Snyder. Here is the song in question. Snyder and Twisted Sister are not the first or the last artist to learn that oftentimes being controversial is uh, more lucrative than being actually good. Janet Jackson released her, her debut. I mean, it's almost misleading to say that Janet Jackson released her debut album in September of 82. A Janet Jackson album was released in that month. Her dad, Joe Jackson, you know, reputation precedes him, was like, it's not enough that I've made five of my children stars and sort of crushed and abused them in the process. I got other kids. I'm going to make all them stars, too. And so it was just sort of, I think, decreed. Janet is, you know, Janet's making an album, and here's the producer, and here's the songs. And she'd already, at this point, she was a celebrity, right? Even, even as a teenager in the 70s, she was a, a semi-regular cast member on... One day at a time, I think that's what she was on. So she was already a household name and well on her way to being one of America's sweethearts. And they put out this album and it's not very good. The Janet Jackson album that put her on the map and the song that put her on the map is called Control, which was, I think, you know, like a lot of songs, you end up writing it in the form of a love song. I'm in control of my love life, but it was a thinly veiled declaration of independence from the producers she'd worked with from her dad and basically saying, I'm not just some, you know, Paris Hilton that you can stick in front of a microphone and make me sing a song. I'm a legitimate artist with legitimate things to say. And I've said it before. I think Janet Jackson has become incredibly underrated. If you go back and visit her body of work and the, the, really really big string of successful singles that she put out she's you know she's not maybe maybe she's not prince but she's like one notch below the true greats of the 80s and when you think about who are the big pop you know solo artists of the 80s and janet jackson is probably not one of the top 10 names that comes to mind but this is before that when she was saying she was in control, she was declaring to the world that she was no longer going to record songs like this, which came out in September of 82. I traded off my childhood treasures 
I'm not going to lie. That was a lot better than I thought it was going to be. I kind of dug that. I, I actually think that's a half decent Janet Jackson single. Anyway, speaking of the Jacksons, this is the end of the road. I'll remind you again. There's how many more songs? I don't know if I'm going to talk about all of them, but literally one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. Oh my, there's 15 there's no way I'm going to get to all of them, but I'm talking about at least a dozen other new releases from September of 82. By the time you're done listening to this, it's already waiting for you, uh, free of charge to listen to, open to the public at patreon.com slash Mike Tully. But I will leave you with this. While Janet was, you know, being produced and written for in the studio by a team of who knows who, her brother Michael was in the studio writing and producing i don't know if it was an entire album but it was at least this single from diana ross's latest album diana ross and the supremes needless to say has recorded some great songs but she has also recorded some really really bad ones and i guess that's how if you're michael jackson you have albums that have nine big legendary singles on them if you have a good song you don't share it with anybody else here is diana ross performing one of uh, michael jackson's leftovers thank you as always for joining me here please if you haven't rated wherever you listen to this itunes spotify it really does help it really i'm sure it's the only reason why guests come on this show is because they look and they go oh people like this thing sure i'll come by so if you want to hear good guests on the show please uh you know click a star thing write a review on whatever platform you listen to the show on. I leave you with this. Enjoy Diana Ross. And you can hear Michael Jackson on backup vocals, I believe, and a track entitled Muscles.